0: This is Dot and you're listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript, the podcast where we talk to people who love manuscripts about the manuscripts they love the most. Today I am very excited to be talking to Paul Dilley. Paul is associate professor of ancient Mediterranean religions with a joint appointment in the departments of classics, religious studies, and the center of the book at the University of Iowa. He specializes in the religions of late antiquity, particularly early Christianity with an approach that integrates cultural history, philology, and the digital humanities. He is especially interested in the development of early Christianity within the various cultures of the Greco-Roman world, including Egypt and Syria, as well as the reception of the classical tradition in these diverse areas. He has published widely and is currently finishing up his second monograph, Hagiography and Greco-Roman Theater, Mime, Tragicomedy, and the Therapy of Emotions, which explores a group of late antique biographies of saints that he connects with Greco Roman theater, as well as their implicit therapeutics of laughter and the emotions. Paul, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Dot. It's good to see you again and good to be here. It's
0: Really great to have you here, and your work just sounds so fascinating, and I had a quick look at some of the images that you sent ahead of recording, and and the the manuscript looks just really interesting. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you, and why don't you tell us a little bit about the manuscript uh, that you're going to be talking about, and we'll go from there.
1: Great, thank you. So uh, today I'm going to be talking about several, but mostly just focus on one of uh, what is known as the Medinet Mahdi Library of Manichaean Codices, so we can unpack that a little bit. Uh, These were seven very large papyrus manuscripts that were discovered somewhere in Egypt in about 1929. They appeared on the Antiquities Market in Cairo then, Uh, and although there is no archaeological context, very unfortunately, uh, the dealer there traced it back to excavations or, uh, well, uh, illicit excavations or potentially just a discovery nobody knows and probably nobody ever will uh, in a place there called Medina Mahdi in the Fayum, which is a sort of uh, oasis region to the southwest of modern Cairo. So uh, they came on the market in 1929, and uh, there were seven of them. At that point, they were not conserved, so the papyrus leaves were basically uh, stuck together in uh, various arrays. Uh, Whether or not their covers were intact uh, is... (laughs) Kind of one of these unknowns that, again, will likely never be resolved. But in any case, uh, the seven codices were ultimately split up between two buyers. So one of them was the Berlin Museums, represented by Carl Schmidt, And the other was Chester Beatty, who is mm-hmm. an Irish-American Uh, businessman, uh, tycoon, really, of of the period, Uh, he and uh, Pierpont Morgan were the two major uh, book and manuscript collectors in the US at the time. So uh, he purchased uh, several of the codices, the rest were purchased by the Berlin Group. And uh, it then basically transpired over the over the next 90 plus years, Ah, uh, probably less than half of these manuscripts have been published, which uh, is is a crazy thing. I I'm going to put that on hold because I want to just give you a little bit more physical basics of what we're talking about. So okay. uh, they are seven papyrus codices. Uh, papyrus is a uh, well, it's it's where we get the word paper, but it's actually quite different from from modern paper. It's a sort of uh, plant-based riding surface, uh, which is from the interior fibers of the papyrus plant, which grows in the marshes of Egypt. Uh, mm-hmm. Pretty flexible and tough uh, when it is produced and thereafter. Uh, however, when it's been sitting in the sands of Egypt for uh, 1700 years, then it can be damaged uh, much more easily. And, and also as an organic material, it tends to do things like uh, get sticky. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so uh, in any case, the issue, the next issue involved with the manuscripts was conserving them so that they could actually be read. Because again, they were not in the situation, even of let's say, uh, an old, very old parchment book uh, that is bound and can be taken off the shelf and consulted by just opening up and and flipping through the pages. With these, they were in a state that could be called a book block. So basically, uh, the papyrus was stuck together and not openable in the state that they were in. So uh, luckily, in Berlin, there was a master papyrus conservator. This is in the early 30s, Hugo Ibscher. Uh, who was so well respected that Chester Beatty actually gave the, the portion of the find that he had purchased to Ibscher in Berlin to uh, have him conserve those as well. So uh, this began a very long project of actually trying to take the pieces off the book block piece by piece without... Uh, so on on the one hand... Uh, Some of them were quite brittle. So the issue there, as you remove the pages, is that they not actually uh, disintegrate. And uh, on the other hand, um, once they're actually taken off, to be able to put them in a place that uh, is going to be good for their subsequent conservation. So uh, that was usually uh, either glass or a substance, polyurethane-like substance, PMMA. Uh, So both of those were used by the conservators. And so I say manuscripts, but in the current state that they're in, essentially it's pages under glass. So uh, it's it's not the book form that it once was. In introducing the library, I called it the Medina at Mahdi Library of Manichaean codices. Now, codex is just ultimately the Latin term for the sort of book uh, that is uh, most prevalent today. Uh, now, this in antiquity was essentially a number of choirs, uh, stuck together, uh, and uh, dot. You can tell us a lot about this. <laughs> uh, it's uh, essentially a very important task of, of reconstruction to to be able to uh, put the loose pages, because remember uh, they've been taken out and separated, uh, and so. We need to imagine how they were together originally and folded together to form choirs, in this Mm -hmm. case, quaternions, so 16 uh, pages if you're counting one side as a page. Uh, And and so uh, that is one of the struggles of Reconstruction because these things were conserved in the 1930s. And uh, the conservators actually did not do the best job for some of them in terms of taking notes as to which page came in in what order. So that's a bit I, of a mess,
0: yeah. I was gonna ask about that. i'm really I'm really curious about this because i I have never, as far as I can remember, I have never actually heard of a codex made of papyrus. Like when I think of papyrus, Probably I'm thinking of like the earlier things like the, well, Herculaneum maybe, but but rolls like papyrus scrolls is what I'm used to hearing about. And so are they made just like a codex, like with longer sheets that are then folded? Yes. It sounds like and bound together.
1: Yes, that's right. So you do have papyrus codices, um, mostly surviving in Egypt. Uh, where they were actually the the primary material used for the codices, uh, you know, probably because papyrus is manufactured in Egypt. So it was just cheaper there. Uh, and uh, in terms of farming, I can't really speculate too much on the economy, but I, I do know that uh, there certainly would have been competing uses for relatively rarer animals in Egypt than as uh, skin for for parchment. But mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, uh, you you do get papyrus codices. Ooh. These are interesting because uh, they are among the largest surviving, uh, and possibly actually the largest. Although it's hard to uh, be precise about this sort of thing because a lot of the surviving works that we have books are are actually just parts of books. So it's hard to really know uh how how large they were originally. But uh most of these codices are uh in good enough shape. Now I say that actually uh with some mirth because uh they're they're actually in in some respects and in, in some places they're tatters, but uh in others they actually you could say on the whole they've been preserved quite well in the sense that we can get a sense of what the whole book looked like uh, through various kinds of reconstruction. And, and so some of them, for example, the manuscript that I'm going to be focusing on today, uh, sometimes called the Dublin Cephalia, uh or the Chester Beatty Kefaliah. Uh, Let me unpack those two terms. So uh, it's called Dublin because the Chester Beattie Museum is in Dublin. Uh, So Chester Beattie left his collection to the Irish government uh, and and they uh, founded a museum in his honor, the Chester Beattie Library, which is actually uh, front and center in any tourist itinerary of Mm -hmm. Dublin. Check it out. uh, can (laughs) confirm. Excellent. Yes.
0: It's a gorgeous, uh, it's a gorgeous building and the collection is incredible. It's really, if you go to Dublin, you have to go to to this, to this library. It's really great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I've spent many happy hours there. It's a great place. Uh, And, and so, you know, we call it the Chester Beatty Kefalaya because that's where it's housed now. Uh, Kefalaya is a Greek term for chapters And uh, what the codex is, is essentially a kind of doctrinal compendium of the teachings of Mani. So uh, I mentioned the title of the collection, the Medina-Mahdi Library of Manichaean Codices. I'll say that again. So Manichaean refers to the religion. uh, And this is one of my uh, three favorite things about this manuscript is that uh, the Manichaean religion Uh, There's different ways to understand it. Uh, Historically, it's been in uh, the Mediterranean and the Latin West and and also uh, Greek Orthodox tradition. It's been understood as the arch heresy of early Mm -hmm. Christianity. So uh, Mani as a, a kind of early Christian heretic. Uh, many scholars have kind of uh, worked with this and seen Mani as the last representative of what are called the Gnostic heresies. Uh, but the difference between Manichaeism and most other early heretical groups is that uh, Mani founded his own church. He called it an ecclesia. Uh, it was very widespread in the Roman Empire, also in the Persian Empire and on down the Silk Road uh, into Central Asia, and then China. And it was a, a very long-standing community uh, in all of those regions. However, it had the bad luck of being persecuted uh, virtually everywhere it was, so uh, persecuted by uh, non-Christian Roman emperors, so Diocletian, who also persecuted the Christians. Uh, he persecuted the Manichaeans because uh, Mani came from Persia. Uh, in the Persian Empire, uh, Mani was, at uh, by the emperor Shapur, given freedom to roam about the empire and convert people, but by some of his successors, uh, he was persecuted. Bahram uh, is said to have killed him or or put him in prison where he died. And then subsequently, the, the leaders are persecuted in Persia. So uh, everywhere the community was persecuted, their books were burned. And so uh, it is only through the chance discovery of manuscripts like this one, these seven Coptic codices, that we can understand the religion on its own terms and not just through uh, the reconstruction or polemical attacks of uh, quote-unquote orthodox Christians like Augustine, for example.
0: Right. So for listeners who may be familiar with sort of modern or even like medieval and earlier like Christian theological beliefs, like what, what the orthodox beliefs are, what, how was Manichaeism different? Like what were their basic beliefs that were like off kilter from what you were supposed to believe?
1: Yeah. So, uh, Mani is quite a confluence of a lot of different things going on in, in Christianity. Uh, he was active in the third century. So before you get the kind of final crystallization of orthodoxy that gets supported by the emperor Constantine and and later becomes associated with the empire. So uh, he was, again, outside the Roman Empire. So in probably uh, a baptismal sect of uh, Christians who practice at least a form of Jewish law, uh, although the exact details of of this community are somewhat fuzzy, uh, but it seems like uh, they rejected the the Pauline message uh, in favor of things like, uh, you know, regular ritual purifications of of various kinds and and certain mm-hmm. kinds of food laws. Uh, so Mani grew up in this community. Uh, At a certain point, he, according to what's known as the Cologne Mani Codex, which is another really interesting manuscript, uh, it's a, a very small Greek manuscript which talks about Mani's early childhood. So uh, he, at some point, uh, went face-to-face with the leaders of this community. He challenged them on various aspects of the rule and uh, eventually left it, was kicked out, asked to leave. Maybe he left himself, who knows. Uh, But then he goes into uh, greater Persia and meets uh, members, probably actually already was uh, at least a little bit familiar with uh some of the outline traditions above all zoroastrianism uh, which has a sort of uh it's it's hard to reconstruct exactly what zoroastrian looked like there but it was dualistic so uh there were two primordial gods a good god and a bad god mm-hmm. uh and manichaeism Probably the main difference doctrinally in Manichaeism is that uh, Manichaeism has its own kind of dualism. So uh, the idea is that there were also originally two principles, uh, a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. And there's uh, a very long and and, in some places uh, quite lurid and and violent cosmogony that is a, a myth about the creation of the world in which the kingdom of darkness attacks the kingdom of light. The kingdom of light responds by sending uh, a a son of the the father of light to fight the darkness, but as a kind of trap. So uh, this this, uh, primal man, as he's called, uh, loses the first battle. And so light gets stuck in the darkness. And then the subsequent creation of the world which happens in various acts, as well as uh, the creation of Adam and Eve is uh, all an elaborate follow-up to this in which the kingdom of light kind of plots the gradual uh, recovery of the light that is now trapped in the darkness, which is equated with the material world uh, in in which we live. So uh, that's the... The major doctrinal difference and then the other is, is that mani had a, a very uh open approach to other religious traditions so he mm-hmm. saw himself as uh the third in a line of revealer figures uh, uh the fourth rather the culmination and before him came jesus to the west as he put it uh zoroaster to iran and buddha to the east Mm-hmm. So uh, the Zoroastrian connections to Manichaeism are all over the place and very clear, especially in this favorite manuscript I'm presenting. That's probably its major trademark is that it presents Mani uh, in his Iranian context. And then uh, Buddhism as well, which was at least known in, in some of the eastern territories in the Sasanian Empire and the Iranian Empire at the time. So uh, much more cosmopolitan, you could argue. Mm-hmm. Than, uh Christianity and the Roman Empire.
0: Right. I love that. It's so, it's so different. Um, and I love, I love the idea of the light and the dark sort of even before Genesis, you know, in the Bible, the way the Bible that we think of it, there's the whole thing that happened. This whole thing that happened before, and now we're dealing with it. And also, I also wonder if George Lucas read that or heard about that because <laughs> as soon as he started talking about light in the dark, maybe this is my brain, but I'm immediately I'm like Star Wars and the yes. the Force, and, and 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 that is interesting because I because it's not only like monarchyism and and Star Wars. But like the whole, the light and the dark thing is like, that seems to be something that comes up a lot. Like, you know, like it doesn't surprise me that humans, you know, in the fourth century or third century were like coming up with this because the, the, the good versus evil and light versus dark is just very, very basic. And I really like, I really like that.
1: Yes. So. Yeah. There's certainly an enduring human appeal to this kind mm-hmm. of dualism for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah cool so um so we've talked a little bit about about these manuscripts what they are oh i meant to ask you how how big are they cuz you you were saying that they were they were big but i i wasn't sure if that meant like they have lots of pages or they're like physically like large like how big are we talking
1: so uh mostly in terms of page number i mean um you know their their size is uh you know uh probably larger than than your standards pocket book uh today but uh you know certainly not uh not huge in, in that not respect huge. but uh, in, in terms of page number the kefalaya the dublin kephalia is uh reconstructed at 496 pages so right. uh, 31 choirs of, of 16 pages yeah. so
0: that's a lot um, of pages
1: It is, it is. And, uh, you know, there are, uh, in parchment codices, uh, you know, some of the, the famous, uh, uh, complete Bibles like Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are, you know, clock in at over 700, but they are, uh, very large for a papyrus codex. Um, the, the Psalm book, uh, which is one of the other, uh, from the Seven Codex library is uh, longer than than that even uh, by maybe about a hundred pages, and and that is the the largest known of the uh, surviving papyrus codices. So, so really uh, a, a substantial collection. Of course, not all of those pages are extant any longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mm-hmm. do this; uh, we can kind of reconstruct based on a few choir numbers that that have survived. Yeah. Uh, but uh certain parts of the codex seem to have been destroyed could have been in antiquity uh could have already been in antiquity but it might have happened uh during the process of discovery and uh you know transport and and who knows what but but in any case uh there's about uh 300. 50 360 surviving pages of the of the codex so that's quite a bit but again i can only stress enough not all of those are in the same state uh some of them you know are are barely legible others are are pretty close to being fully preserved so
0: yeah and i'll include i'll include images in the like photographs in the show notes so people can see like he's he's not kidding (laughs) you know papyrus is is really it's it just it just crumble it seems to crumble a lot and and uh also thinking about like when you talk about the them being stuck together and pulling them you know taking them apart like it i it it makes me feel weird just thinking about it because all i can think about is how how delicate they are and how that must have Oh yes, been really hard <laughs> to do. Does the te- does the ink um tend to transfer at all? So when when the papyrus has been pulled apart is there ink sometimes from the page that was stuck to the to the other page? Does that happen yeah. to
1: that's a great question and surprisingly not uh there are other issues with the ink uh and and those tend to just be that the the ink is difficult to really uh read as is in in many places and part of that could be uh just natural fading over the centuries uh other uh reasons are related to, for those pages that were taken off in the thirties, the ink just kind of naturally fades over time, especially uh, after it's been exposed to air. Uh, And then in addition to that, in the 1950s, uh, that's part two of the conservation story that I didn't get to. So uh, Hugo's son, Rolf Ibscher, uh, after the war, uh, contracted with Chester Beattie to uh, finish the remaining conservation—that is, separation of the of the leaves from from the book block—and uh, this was done. Uh, Rolf, in many respects, uh, is a hero in in this whole story because. He continued a, a process that few people probably would have agreed to do because it was a rather daunting task to, to look at these book blocks. But on the other hand, uh, he clearly was uh, not as skilled as his father. That sounds harsh, but, you know, you can you can look at the uh, correspondence between him and uh, Chester Beattie and his uh uh, his staff, as as the library was was beginning to to grow in the fifties, uh, these the Chester Beatty Kefalaya and, and several other books were at the British Library in London at that point, point. Uh, and Rolf was making trips uh, from East Germany uh, in the fifties to to London to to try to work there, uh, and you get some complaints from some of the staff at the British Library saying that he's applying. Fixatives, uh, which presumably would have been to shore up the papyrus leaf after it had been removed, uh, so that it didn't crumble. Uh, but in, in some of these letters, uh, in, in one of them in particular, there's a complaint that after applying this, the ink had further faded. Um, and, and so actually, one of the the great frustrations in editing this thing, and this is something I began uh, in in 2009 uh, with my colleagues, uh, Ian Gardner and Jason Badoon. Uh, one of the issues at first was that on pages that were preserved, you could see traces of the ink and, you know, occasionally could read some letters and words, uh, but try as you might and you know, this meant using digital photography, uh, working uh, with natural light at various angles at the Chester Beatty, uh, and an initial set of multispectral imaging, um, which didn't go great, uh, but you know did did allow us to to make extra readings. You know, there was still just a ton of ink that that you couldn't read, uh, even though the page itself was still there. Uh, and so this kind of extreme fading, I think, uh, because it's not in the Berlin Kefalia, which Hugo Mm -hmm. restored may have actually been tied to this fixative, uh, that, that Rolf was applying in London. So again, I'm not demonizing Rolf, uh, Mm -hmm. in, in any way, uh, you know, it's, uh, difficult process. And, you know, without him, that would still be a book block, like one other uh, manuscript in this library is. And I I can talk about that in in a little bit as well, the Synaxis book block. But, uh, you know, the the Chester Beatty pages that have been conserved and placed under glass or polyurethane, uh, they are uh, in in many respects, illegible to the naked eye, even though, you know, you can surmise that ink is there eh. <laughs> reading it, definitely a different story.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned um, some of the ma- ways that you tried to be able to read the text, um, natural light. It sounds like maybe like raking light, which is where you have, you know, where you have, instead of the light being straight on top of the text, you sort of move it. So it's, you know, at a I don't I don't know what the degree angle if there's like an official angle, but it helps you to actually see where where at least on, on parchment where the pen mark is in the in the surface. Does it work and in your nodding? Does it work the same way with, with with papyrus as well? Is that why you do that? Uh
1: or... so on on this particular codex, it's not particularly successful for uh being able to see those kinds of indentations, what it is useful for, uh, and we do have these uh, raking light images, uh, is that it can help you see uh, what's papyrus uh, and what's not. So one of the issues in in trying to read this is that uh, sometimes you'll think that a shadow formed from a hole in the papyrus is actually ink. Uh, right. So, with a raking light image, uh, you can actually tell uh, what part of the papyrus has been preserved and and what hasn't in terms of the fiber structure. So, so that's pretty valuable, but it doesn't have the same oomph as as multispectral can in terms of making the making the ink appear.
0: Right. So, why don't you talk if, a little if you can a little bit about what multispectral imaging is and how how it helped or not with uh, with your readings of of this manuscript.
1: Yeah, so uh multispectral imaging is a technique that has been around for over 20 years but has definitely in in the past 10 uh mm-hmm. really uh let's say 20 has has made leaps and bounds uh both in terms of the camera technology uh on the one hand and then post-processing techniques on the other uh and essentially the goal is to use parts of uh the spectrum beyond the visible uh to bring out uh contrast which may not be present in uh the rgb spectrum between the ink and the substrate surface. So Mm -hmm. uh, it may be, depending on the chemical composition of your ink, that uh, looking at the manuscripts in infrared uh, will really bring out a difference in terms of reflected light uh, at that wavelength between say a carbon-based ink and uh, papyrus. Uh, for our particular manuscripts, which is uh a little bit older, I, I mean a little bit more recent than uh, a lot of the f- more famous carbon-based ink manuscripts like the Herculaneum papyri, for example, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, late antique, Manuscripts are often uh, with uh, iron gall based ink, uh, they may have a little bit of carbon in there. Um, some colleagues at Hamburg and other places are are doing more kind of uh, systematic appraisals of, of ink composition. But in any case, uh, in our case, the ultraviolet end of the spectrum was exceptionally helpful in teasing out the difference between the ink and the papyrus substrate surface. So uh, usually you get multispectral imaging being used to actually make a distinction between two different layers of ink. So uh, where it's that uh, one layer of ink responds differently at various wavelengths uh, to the other layer. And so in this case, it's actually uh, relatively uncommon use of multispectral imaging to try to just make faded ink jump out uh and so uh we had a couple of rounds of this uh our our first round uh back in 2011 2012 uh made made some uh helpful steps and and allowed us to uh go ahead and, and publish part of the codex uh, using the the best preserved part of it. But then um, there was a lot of places where clearly ink was there, but still could not be read. Uh, And and so I reached out to colleagues at the University of Hamburg, uh, the Center for the Study of Manuscript Cultures. They have a a mobile lab there uh, and they do various kinds of, of multispectral imaging. So in 2019, they went over to the Chester Beattie Library and did uh, a sample of of manuscripts, not just from the Kefaliah, but also the Synaxis Codex, uh, the Psalm book, and the homilies. These are all from the Midian at Mahdi Library. And uh, there was one afternoon, I think in... April of 2019, when my colleague from Hamburg, Yvonne, sent me an email, uh, you know, with this before-after from a page that uh, I worked on, you know, for a long time before, and it was just extraordinary—the uh, the amount of of text that, uh, both the imaging and and the post-processing was able to uh pick out so uh you know in in many cases I would say between uh you can now read uh 200 or to between 200 and 400 percent more text. I mean it's uh just just extraordinary so uh we have since uh worked with Hamburg to continue the imaging process uh and and now uh I've begun a, a project, at hamburg uh with with colleagues there uh to continue this this process un, until it's finished so uh very exciting stuff and it, it should really help with uh, the reading of this important library which has basically been neglected uh you know you hear about the dead sea scrolls and the Nakamati library mm-hmm. of uh, gnostic literature but this is just as important it's just because it's been so difficult to read uh, it, it hasn't seen the light of day, so to speak.
0: Right. So you sent me a couple of images, yes. and um, and I'll put these in the show notes. But it's amazing. So the 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 original RGB image, just taken under under regular light, it's the part the um the papyrus is kind of dark brown, mm-hmm. pretty dark, and I can see that there's parts of it that are kind of darker, <laughs> like a yes. little bit darker. <laughs> like maybe there's, I think, you know, I know that there is writing on it. So then I can yeah. say, okay, there's writing on it. Um, but then the the multispectral image is like, literally like night and day. So the it it makes it so that the parchment, or the, sorry, Pyrus yes. is, is very light, much lighter. And then the ink is still dark. And you can really, you can just, it's just amazing. So I'm switching, I have them open in, in, a, in Adobe and I'm switching back and forth between them. And it's just like, amazing. I'm going to make a gif. I'm going to make a gif of this maybe and awesome. put it on the, on there so you can see it go back and forth. It really is. It really is incredible. I can see why, why you like it. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and
1: there's just now there's so much more that can be read and it's, uh, it's an amazing thing.
0: Yeah, that's really great. Um, Good. So, are we through your your three things that you like? I always ask for three things, but maybe you even like more than three things about the manuscript. Sure. I mean, I uh, lost
1: count. <laughs> well, I uh, I think um, there's there's other things we could talk about. I I, I would like to talk about the uh, Synaxis Codex, which mm-hmm. is uh, part of the the same library and. Is uh, is related to to the katholai. I think my uh, my third thing that I like about the katholai is the the sort of uh, loose bibliographic structure that it has in terms of uh, a single writing that well could be interpreted as a single writing, but it's actually uh, unfolds across two different manuscripts. Uh, there's, uh, clearly a lot of flexibility in terms of what the scribe might have included, uh, left out, added to it, uh, in terms of structure, there's actually no page number, which is, uh, not necessarily, uh, that common in antiquity. I mean, many large books would have had page numbers, so that only adds to the difficulty and, in, and in the, mm-hmm. the reconstruction of it, but, yeah there's there's a lot of what we might call bibliographic aspects of the text, which are quite interesting and and definitely don't don't conform to modern expectations of of what a book
0: or a, a text is supposed to look like right. so um do you do you know if this was like an originally written manuscript or was it copied? Like, is this? It, are these actually copies of other manuscripts, or was this? Yes. You, yeah.
1: Great question. Yeah, it it really, like a lot of Manichaean writings, the library that we have now is sort of a, a witness of multiple layers of cultural transmission. So, mm-hmm. uh, Mani would have written his original writings in Aramaic, although there is oh. one writing called the Shabur which he uh, is said to have written in Middle Persian. And he wrote that directly to the emperor Shapur, who supported him or is said to have supported his, his missionary efforts. Uh, but mostly he's writing in Aramaic. Uh, and then uh, as his religion grew and he sent apostles to the Roman Empire, Uh, those apostles would have translated the Aramaic writings into Greek. uh, And one of the centers, one of the early centers for the Manichaean mission was Alexandria in Egypt. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, then those Greek texts would have uh, then been uh, ultimately translated into Coptic, uh, which is, Ancient Egyptian, but uh, it's sort of a final stage of the Egyptian language, where instead of hieroglyphics, it was written in uh, basically Greek letters, but with some added letters to to represent Egyptian sounds, which which weren't in contemporary Greek. So, um, so we have these Coptic writings, which mm-hmm. would have been uh, copied sometime in Egypt in the late fourth or uh, through the mid-fifth century uh there's actually been radiocarbon dating done on one so you know we have a, an approximate idea uh and that would have been the date of copying would have already been uh a couple of centuries after uh Mani's own career so to speak so uh it is not uh kind of direct relic of mani himself but it represents the kind of fascinating cultural exchange that is so characteristic of the religion so going from uh what might be called the arameo-iranian uh cultural synthesis in iran to the greco-roman cultural synthesis in the roman empire and then uh the coptic which uh is uh its own has its own place in in that in that region. So so yeah, it's uh, several steps removed from Mani himself, but uh, you know, still uh, I think an important witness of his his later community, which at that point uh, uh, you know was probably facing persecution at least in some areas of uh, a Roman Empire which had become Christian because it was seen as a Christian heresy
0: right yeah and they were all written were they all written sort of at the same time and together imagining it as a library the community is writing here are our sacred texts and we're writing them all out together to have them together as a community kind of thing
1: yeah and and um that question in in some ways is still up in the air because nobody's done um, what's called paleographical analysis. So uh, a study of the handwriting to try to see if it looks like the same scribe wrote one or more codices, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, there's, there've been, you know, a few preliminary observations, but, but nothing really substantial. So that's one of the things that uh, we're kind of slowly working towards. Uh, especially with the digitization, also working with colleagues in digital paleography to to kind of uh, see what uh, the the best way to frame these questions are. But uh, in terms of dialectology, and there are different dialects of Coptic, uh, they all belong to the same dialect, which kind Mm -hmm. of lends credence to the idea that not only were they found together, uh, but they were originally produced, by the same community. Uh, the the type of dialect is called Subak Mimic or now it's called Lycopolitan which is uh, related to Lycopolis which is a city in Middle Egypt. Uh, so whether that localization is entirely correct, uh, you know, it, it does seem like the linguistic uniformity is related to the fact that they were produced by the same community. And then ultimately, however, uh, if it's true that they were found in uh, they were transferred potentially from middle egypt up the nile a bit to their final resting place and you know it's tempting to say they were uh as as sometimes is claimed for example for the Nag Hammadi library that they were buried because uh they were uh you know because of threat of persecution or something like that uh there's no evidence uh for this particular collection Having survived in that matter, it's one of the unfortunate things of of not knowing the provenance. But, uh, you know, broadly speaking, it is very true that the Manichaeans were persecuted and their books were burned. So uh, this is why we only have access to their original teachings from texts like these, chance discoveries like these.
0: Right. Right. That's so neat. Um. So what about this other book that you wanted to talk about? Do you
1: want to Yeah, so um about? yeah, and you mentioned that actually uh in your earlier question, you know, is there can you can you see different aspects of the community in the library? And so the kafalaya are kind of like a teaching handbook, if you will. They could presumably have been catechetical. Uh, as people learned about the religion. Uh, but then there's a uh, psalm book, which are uh, community psalms used in, in various contexts. For example, the, the festival of the Bhima, which commemorated Mani's death every year, or festivals uh, in honor of the recently deceased. Things like these, uh, and the psalm book, as I mentioned, is is the largest one. There's a collection of homilies, uh, you know, which which could potentially have been preached by the elect. So different kinds of genres. But then there's one book uh, which is called the Synaxis Codex. Uh, Synaxis is a, a term of a, its individual sections. Uh, it's a bit of am, uh, ambiguous in terms of what it means in this context, but it's probably A liturgical uh, designation and what's interesting about it is that uh, it may be excerpts of Mani's living gospel which is the the major composition of his which with uh, with which he was uh, kind of particularly identified so the the main uh, part of his revelation which would have been in 22 chapters corresponding to the 22 letters of the Aramaic alphabet, so uh, mm-hmm. this is uh, you know potentially an amazing entree into his most important writing. Uh, some of the pages of the Synaxis Codex were removed; uh, they kind of face some of the same difficulties in in terms of ink legibility uh, as uh, the the, the, the Kephalaia Codex. Um, but the Hamburg team has been imaging, uh, these synopsis pages. Uh, and so, uh, from, from the initial results, uh, it's, it's clear that, uh, once again, they make a, a great deal of, uh, uh, you know, otherwise faded ink legible. So huge process, uh, my colleagues and I, uh, so uh, jason Badoon and ian gardner uh we are going to be uh tackling the synaxis codex as uh as soon as the Kefalaya is finished uh building on the work of of uh, wolf peter funk uh, uh an amazing scholar who's recently deceased uh and uh you know the the major steps are already happening in in terms of acquiring the multispectral images but then there's another uh, collection of pages which are still stuck together in this kind of book block format Mm -hmm. Um, this only came to dublin in 2000 because uh, there was there's a whole i haven't even uh, touched the surface of the the difficult story of the Medina at Mahdi library in terms of editing. Uh, mm-hmm. One of uh, one of the editors, uh, the great Hans-Jakob Polatsky, who was Jewish, uh, he edited the homilies, uh, which was published in, in 33 uh, from Berlin, and then with the rise of the Nazi party, uh, fled to uh, what was then British Palestine, and uh was, among other things, uh instrumental in later on in, in the setting up of, of Hebrew University. So uh there was a, a sort of stoppage in the editorial process. and uh, in the in the 50s, it was kind of resumed a little bit, but anyway, uh, the synaxis Codex remained in Berlin until about 2000s uh, and you know, not, through any uh, sort of, uh, I guess, in, intentional uh, deception or anything like that, just you know the the difficulties in, in orchestrating these sorts of exchanges. So the Berlin Museum sent it back uh, to Chester Beauty Library about that time. In the Irish press, it was called the Sod of Turf, this kind of unconserved <laughs> uh, book yeah. block. And I've sent an image uh, to you uh, there as well, and uh, the the conservators there at the Chester Beatty uh, had long determined that it was off limits in, in terms of trying to remove the pages. But uh, I was working with uh, Brent Seals, who's a computer scientist uh, who is looking at, uh, well, he had started off looking at uh, scrolls, so what he mm-hmm. calls virtually unwrapping unopenable scrolls, the En scroll, uh, which was solved, and then the Herculaneum papyri, uh, which are still, uh, you know, they haven't been cracked yet, but, you know, hopefully, eventually it will. So uh, I've been working with him on similar issues with codices, uh, one of them at the Morgan Library in New York. But then, uh, you know, the hope was that we could apply X-ray tomography to actually read inside the book block without having to open it. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so uh, through the good graces of Christine Rose Beers, who was uh, head of conservation at the Chester Beattie Library, uh, she undertook to uh, secure... The book block in a airtight package uh, which could then be mounted securely at the orientation in which it needed to be placed so that the x-rays uh, we went to uh, diamond light source which is the the uk particle accelerator uh, you know it's usually used for material science and you know industrial testing and stuff but they also have little blocks of time uh you know where you can apply to to do academic uh style tests and and so uh, we were able to to get a block of time there and uh do uh, a rounds of tomography uh in in uh, we had some beam time in in one of their hatches so, uh, still working through that data at several terabytes uh, and uh, you know, trying to at this point isolate page structure. but uh, you know, we have hope that alongside multispectral imaging of pages that have already been removed, we can also use that tomographic imaging to read inside unopenable codecs.
0: Yeah, So is that the photo of you standing next to this? Yes contraption. So I was wondering what that, that was cuz I wanted like that that's is, something great. Uh,
1: that is indeed. <laughs> yeah, it's it's in it's in the hatch and uh diamonds and um uh, yeah the uh it's it's basically all set up to get beams and yeah. uh yeah.
0: Yeah, that's great. So I'll 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 put that in the show notes too just so you can sort of see what's going on there. And also brent seals i worked with brent seals like years ago because I, I was at the university of kentucky at the very start of my career and so uh, no i worked okay. with him and some of his very i remember his very earliest um experiments where he had this role that he had it was encased in something i can't remember and then he had scanned it and they would unroll it it's very cool and he just yes. continues to do very very cool work so it's yes. great that you're working with him. Yes. Um, yeah. Lots
1: of lots of fun things.
0: Lots of stuff. So I will maybe I'll look for there've been articles about his work so maybe I'll find something of those and stick it in the show notes too so yes. people could read more about that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, cuz it's just very we don't we don't talk about the sort of advanced imaging so too much on this podcast but there's like there's so much like imaging and all kinds of technical stuff that's that's happening in the manuscript space at the moment. That's Indeed. really great. So yeah, so I'm glad that you're here to talk about uh, to talk about some of it. Um, so we've been talking for about an hour. Okay. Um, is there anything any any anything else you'd like to say about the manuscripts, or I'm going to start peppering you with questions?
1: Yeah, just uh, it's uh, kind of a amazing and unique feeling to be able to, you know, take one of these images that's especially one that's been treated with multispectral and then, you know, read the teachings of a long lost religion and being, being able to say pretty securely that nobody else has taken a look at this for, you know, over 1500 years. So. Uh, it's, it's definitely a, a strange experience, but, but a great one.
0: So literally uncovering lost knowledge indeed, in yeah. a very real way. Yes. Um, uh, that's great. So, um, Lindsay wasn't able to be here because she has stuff that she's got to work on. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask her questions. So she likes to ask our guests, um, how did you get interested in doing this work that you're doing? Do you have a story to tell about how you got into it?
1: Well, I was always interested in ancient history and uh, kind of gravitated towards religion uh, and spirituality from from a young age. So I think, uh, you know, in particular, Gnosticism was an early interest of mine. Um, and, you know, so that's,
0: Gnosticism, that's like secret See, and and going back way way back but that's like the idea that there is secret knowledge involved that's right. in yeah
1: yes that's right so uh the the greek term gnosis or knowledge uh you know and that too is often related to a big manuscript find the Nag Hammadi library uh and people are debating in a in a very good and robust way you know if gnosticism was uh an appropriate category if it actually corresponded to a community etc but uh there is a set of writings which uh have you know very similar approaches to some of the manichaean teachings and this idea that uh you know the the human condition in the material worlds is alienated in a major way, and uh whether it's an unknowable god in a kind of unbreachable area beyond, or if it's the king of lights uh in uh you know a, a somewhat equally impenetrable area above, uh, which is trying to gather the light that has fallen below. There's a similar idea of uh, reestablishing a connection and uh, the combination of that interest in Gnosticism and then uh, being a philologist and and a linguist uh, and having uh, a strong interest in Coptic. Uh, My graduate advisor, Bentley Layton, Uh, was also, you know, a a major kind of, uh, he was a student of Polotsky in Jerusalem and, you know, has produced various uh, studies of Coptic, a Coptic grammar. And and so my training was very strongly in that area. And so just a combination of the interests and Manichaean religion as uh, both global and cosmopolitan and related to Gnosticism, And Christianity, as well as uh, this kind of large, unedited Coptic manuscripts, which at that point, you know, they were unedited for a reason. They were basically illegible. So, uh, you know, it was kind of the combination of being brave enough to actually try to start the process without having the images and then the great good fortune of eventually getting images that are good enough to to actually read the things that, that really put everything together.
0: Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. And you get to be involved. It sounds like sort of in the whole process. So you're not just sitting at the table reading, you're actually involved in, in helping to get the, get the text out too. Yes, and absolutely. And
1: and that's been really interesting to kind of uh get on the ground as uh, you know, basically it, it boils down to project management and collaboration, uh, you know, to to mm-hmm. sort out all of the things involved. And on the one hand, uh, you know, working with conservators and Computer scientists and engineers, uh, as well as library staff, trying to you know find the time and the space to actually do the images and scheduling everything. Uh, but it also means I have a lot of colleagues, uh, you know, outside my particular discipline, and doing collaborative work in a in a fun and meaningful way, which which really adds a lot to you know the academic uh, research can be isolating if you if you let it. And this is mm-hmm. definitely a way to, to kind of move against that.
0: Nice. So the second question that Lindsay would want me to ask you <laughs> is, um, if you could sit down with any manuscript, let's say not one of these seven, because we've already okay. talked about these, but any other manuscript, what manuscript would it be and why?
1: Okay, that's... Uh, Wow, let me—it's a hard
0: question. <laughs> let me think about that.
1: Um, yeah. <laughs> so, just in the in the sense of wanting to edit it, or or just having access to even
0: just having access to it, just like, being able to sit down at a table with it and put your grubby hands or yes. your clean hands on it.
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I think it would be great to. Uh, Take a look at uh, either Vaticanus or Sinaiticus, the the two very very large Mm -hmm. parchment manuscripts, both for the sort of almost relic like uh, quality that they have, uh, and as as being basically priceless artifacts, but also uh, with Sinaiticus the sort of uh, irony of the fact that you can't actually sit down with it, uh, because it's now shared across uh, four different institutions. Uh, You know, you can do it online. So uh, is that kind of online version uh, a harbinger of a physical reuniting or is that is that all we have? So I don't know. I I put that out there. And the Vaticanus says one that's already uh, been it's it's all still together. So one of those two would be
0: great. Right. Yeah. The one the episode that I just posted last week was um, was uh, Sinaiticus so oh great uh, okay yeah so i'll put a link in the show notes (laughs) to everybody who wants to listen to that yeah that was a really interesting episode actually because she talked a lot about the um the 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 sort of politics around how it got to england and all of that so so that was really interesting we didn't actually talk so much about the fact that it is separated in these four different places but maybe you could say if you you had a big table and you could have all four of the sections there on the table with you that would be that would be pretty great actually to have it all back together anything else any last words oh thank go? you
1: for the opportunity it's uh i like the podcast series and this is my first podcast so it was it was fun
0: yeah. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. This was great. I learned, I, I feel like I say this at the end of every episode, but I need it every single time I learned so much and it was, I really had a great time uh, talking to you. So thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to inside my favorite manuscript. Please, if you enjoy the podcast, leave a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our website is insidemyfavoritemanuscript.tumblr.com, and there you'll find posts for all our episodes and a link where you can contact us directly. We'll be back again soon with another conversation about manuscripts and why we love them.